0: First John chapter one is where we're going to be in God's word this morning. Just a few uh, bit of uh, family news. So it's fun. Uh, Sarah, Sarah Jude and Jesse Blakemore got married last week or uh, two weeks ago now. I don't know. They were here last Sunday. Uh, I don't think they're here this morning. Uh, they got married and then ran off to Savannah to start nursing school. But uh, if you uh, see them ra- hanging around on social media. can say congratulations to them. Um, also, just a little bit of also housekeeping. Uh, uh, literally housekeeping. Uh, we're sweeping a house off our property. Um, this is, uh, for those of you that have any nostalgic feelings about the church house, go visit it now, uh, because it's going away. Uh, it's probably for many of you who haven't even noticed it's there anymore. It's just part of the, uh, the milieu of the property, but there is that church house at the bottom of the hill is ours. It is where the church originally met before they built this building. And, um, we are done with the money pit. um, and it's going down. Uh, Dwight Fisher, are you here? Man, Dwight, should, I don't think Dwight's here. The house, according to Dwight, tried to kill him about 25 years ago. And he has been really, he, he's hated that house ever since. So this is a gift. <laughs> this is a gift to you, Dwight. We're gonna take down the house. I'm not exactly sure what day that's gonna happen, but did want to make you aware uh, that that is gonna be happening in the near future. All right, God's word. First John, verses, chapter one, verses one through four as we take a break from our series on Acts. As we dive into First John for the course of this semester, we'll get back to Acts, I believe, in January uh, and finish the second half of it. But let's feed you from somewhere else in God's Word for a couple months. Hear God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, this book that we're diving into is called The Epistle of 1 John, or The First Epistle of John. You have a title for it in your Bible. It was written, we believe, by the Apostle John, although there is no evidence of that in the book itself. You're, many of us are used to New Testament books being written by Paul, where Paul makes it very clear from the very beginning who is writing it, who he's hanging out with, and who, he's, who, the, who he is. And that's not John's style. John just dives right in with a prologue here, with a preface to his book of sorts. But we do believe this is John for a couple reasons, who is the author here, for a couple reasons. One is the internal evidence, is uh, linguists or people who study the Bible from what's called a literal grammatical standpoint, it's an academic study, what they try to find is in order to understand and determine who the authors are Is they compare various books in which we're quite certain who the author is, what's the type of grammar and vocabulary and style of speaking in other books. And the book here, you even find it in the first four, four verses of uh, second, or 1st John, is very similar to the language of the Gospel of John. And so we have internal evidence. There is a lot of similarities. They use the same kind of vocabulary. They have the same kind of themes, the same kind of passions, the same kind of verbiage. And so we, we think internally there is some evidence that this is John. There's also external evidence and that the earliest church uh, understood and actually espoused and professed that it was John who wrote this book. Uh, Many of the early famous church fathers uh, proclaimed and communicated that it was John, the Apostle John, who wrote this book, these three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And so we would hold to them, in fact, Polycarp, who was one of the earliest church fathers, who was a disciple of John, says that it was John who wrote this book. And so we have great confidence, both from the internal and the external evidence, but that is who is writing this. By the way, it is called an epistle. And you might be wondering, what in the world is that? Is that like a, I don't know, the wife of an apostle? This is, that's what's going on here. That is, that is not what's going on here. Epistle meant letter. And so that's what John is writing. There's a letter to the church. We believe it was probably initially written to the church in Asia Minor, to the church in Ephesus, there in Turkey. And so that is a little bit of academic background and that's all I think we need for right now. But to give you an overview of the book, what is 1 John about? 1 John is about and is um, understood by commentators and pastors alike, They're those who have studied this book in and out, is that this epistle, this letter, is about assurance of salvation. Throughout the letter, the language that John uses that I want you to see is the, verb, the word that comes up all over the place is, I want you to know, to know. Left and right, he uses this kind of terminology. In other words, he's using that word in the sense of know as in being sure of something, certain of something. John is concerned in this letter that you can identify the signs of a true gospel message. He wants to be sure that you understand that message and he wants you to be sure that you know God personally, that your experience and your faith with God is genuine. And this, it is this common experience for many of you who have been, whether you've been in the church for a number of years, your whole life, or perhaps you're a f- fairly young Christian, and this question comes up left and right. Do I really truly know God? Am I really saved? So much so that many kids, in large part because the churches in which they grow up in, are each week, every week, what they pound into them is, you're not living good enough. And then they have an altar call. And altar calls are good. It is a call to repent and believe. But week in and week out, and maybe this was your experience, in which kids, teenagers, they go to camps and they walk aisles and they get saved 156 times because they're never quite sure, are they? Am I saved? Am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? This is a pastoral concern. And I was a youth pastor, and I had to engage with this very specific issue with youth kids, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, who are becoming to terms with the sinfulness in their life. And smack dab in the middle of that, because they're facing their sin in a real way for the first time, many of them, and the significance of it, they're asking this question, how can I know I'm saved? And the place that I would time and time again say, let's go to 1 John. Because 1 John tells you over and over again of the goodness of the gospel. And the New Testament, this is a theme that the pastors, the apostles, the preachers of the New Testament, they long for you to know, for you to be sure and certain to know of your salvation. Hebrews 10, for example, Paul, we believe, is the writer of Hebrews. He says that we are able to draw near to God with assurance. Hebrews 11, he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hebrews 6, we have a sure hope. Romans 8, he says, I am convinced of this, that nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, it says, I want us to attain to the wealth that comes from full assurance. And in Colossians 4, someone who's not even writing the book of Colossians a guy named Epaphras kind of leans over Paul's shoulder and is speaking to the church of Colossae. And he says, Let them know that I'm praying for them that they would have full assurance in Christ Jesus. This is a pastoral theme that runs throughout the New Testament. And it is the longing of good pastors, of loving pastors, for their people to know this. And so we come to the prologue this morning of John's book, of this letter. And what he does here is he sets the stage for certainty. He sets the stage for his discussion here on assurance for the rest of this book, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. He provides us, I'll break it down to three points, what he says about assurance in in providing this kind of preface here this morning, leading into this book. The first thing he tells us about is he talks about the foundation of certainty. As we see this in verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, here's what he says. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now here's what John is doing in these first two verses. Very clearly, John is making a doctrinal defense based on historical evidence. He's making a clear Christian claim based on historical evidence. John defends here the real and genuine humanity and the incarnation of Jesus, who was and is eternal life from the beginning. That's what he's saying. He begins, he says, that which was from the beginning. That means eternal, the eternal Son of God, that which was from the beginning, who has no beginning and no end. We have seen him. The eternal God, we have seen him. This is the wonder of wonders in the gospel that Jesus, that the Son of God, would take on flesh. And that's what he is is grounding our certainty in. That this eternal life, the word of life, would become visible. That the invisible God would become visible in front of us. That the eternal would enter the temporal that the one who has no body would take on a body. In other words, he is amazed, and at the core of this teaching is this reality, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this, this doctrine, he's not only really clear about it, but this doctrine is also, we have to see, is unique in the world's religions. This is unique. This doctrine is specific, but it's also unique. You see, the, that, many of the doctrines, particularly the New Age, are, Doctrines, Eastern religious uh, doctrines, what they would say about the incarnation is that God is in everything. God is imminent. God is present in all things. He is the divine spark. He's in all things. And so, therefore, they, oh, it's okay, the incarnation, that totally makes sense. That God walks among us, that He's with us. Totally cool. That's normal, right? We believe that. So much so that they would say that God is in everything, and therefore they would say everything is God. That is a, a distortion of what biblical doctrine would say is God is everywhere, God is not in everything. We don't point to trees and say that is divine because God indwells it. God made it, and he's around and near that tree. He is present with the tree, but he is not in the tree. The tree is not something that we worship. And so on one side, we have religions that say God is imminent with all things and all peoples. He's incarnated in this way. But then on the other hand, we have a lot of religions. Primarily the main ones would be you know of is Islam and Judaism. And they would say that God is so transcendent that there is no way, it is an impossibility that the transcendent God would enter into and become Emmanuel and enter in and take on flesh. Well, the Bible is slicing right in between those. The uniqueness of the doctrine of the scriptures is this, is that the incarnation is not normal. God is not imminently present with all things. He is not just a divine spark, but also it says that it is possible It blows our minds and we don't understand it how the God of gods, the one who spun all things into creation, would take on flesh to the point of becoming a little baby inside the womb of a mother. We don't understand it. It blows our categories. But what John is saying is, while we may not understand it, the evidence we have to be, we are confronted with. And so the uniqueness of this doctrine is slicing through and saying, listen, it's not normal for God to come in but he does come in, which means this is a one-time unique and unfathomable event that changes everything in the world that God would enter into this world, that he would take on flesh and be in manual with us. So that's the, that's the doctrine, but then he provides historical evidence of that doctrine. And what is the evidence? We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. We felt him. John is one of the early, he's one of the 12 original apostles. He's one of the core three. He's the one in his gospel he would articulate that he would talk about leaning into Jesus' breast, that he would hug him and be physically next to him. In other words, he was an eyewitness along with all the other apostles. In fact, here it says in these first three verses, four verses, it says we and our. John is referring to both his testimony and the testimony of others who were eyewitnesses, mainly the apostles of their personal experience of Jesus. That if you're thinking about this as a courtroom, that John and the other apostles are coming giving an apologetic and saying, we saw it. We saw it happen with our own eyes. He's saying, so when we read these accounts of Jesus walking on water and Jesus raising people from the dead and Jesus healing people, those are not simply things that we heard about. Those are things we saw. We saw the evidence of it. We saw those who could not walk, walk. We saw those who were dead come alive. And then, yes, we even saw the resurrection of Jesus. We saw him. We were there at the cross. They they pierced his side. They confirmed he was dead. Do you know the Roman soldiers back then, you know what they were best known for? You know what their number one skill was? Death. They were really good at making sure you were dead. And they're saying, that we, sat there, we saw him dead. The Roman soldiers made sure he was dead, and they confirmed that he was dead. And yet three days later, he's showing up and he's hanging out with us. Now we can't explain that, but we cannot deny it. See, this is, this is what a Christian belief is. We're we be willing to be confronted with the undeniable, with the facts, with the evidence. And this is what Christianity, we rest on. As it is not simply the spiritual kind of nebulous belief that we have. We talked about this at the beginning of Acts, that we are believing in historical evidence, we have a reasonable faith that Christianity rises and falls, whether these things happened or not. Now, so that's the doctrine. That's the historical evidence that there's all these eyewitnesses. In fact, we see in Luke that it says there was 500 witnesses who saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so you could go to them and say, "Listen, is this true?" And they could say yes or no. And they confirmed that it was true. Well, this doctrine and this historical defense, it confronts two false beliefs. It confronts a belief in that day that that church was facing, and it confronts a belief in our day as well. The belief that John was trying to go up against and the belief that was terrorizing the church to which he was writing was what was called Gnosticism. It was Gnosticism in its earliest days, before it had really been formalized and institutionalized. But it was a prominent heresy they came to, to to begin to ravage the church, particularly the second and third centuries. but we see the early forms of it here, and in fact, Gnosticism, if you're familiar with new age religions, Gnosticism is essentially a prototype of new age religions. The Gnostics believed here's what they believed that the physical that the material world was evil and inferior that it had that only the spiritual was truly real, the physical was either not as real or not real at all. And therefore, this changed the way they viewed the incarnation. That when it said that Jesus is a real, physical Lord, the Son of God, taking on flesh, they would say, no, 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 that didn't happen. That wasn't real. The incarnation didn't actually happen. In other words, they're saying that God didn't become man. He didn't take on flesh. And they're undercutting the gospel when they do that. They rejected the incarnation. Because why? Because they believe the body is bad. God would not take on something evil. He wouldn't take on flesh. What matters is having a spiritual knowledge, having some heightened form, getting beyond the physical. And you can see the ramifications of this and the implications of this as it's played out in New Age religions. And while you would go, you know what? I want to get outside of the sense of my constraints of my body and even my mind. And I want to get to another dimension, another reality, a more spiritual reality. And so yes, I'll smoke that. Yes, I'll do that that gets me outside of the physical. It helps lift me up to another dimension, as they would say, to the spiritual realm. Well, this is what Gnostics would say, and this is what John is confronting. He's saying, listen, they're undercutting the very truth that we are claiming here, that it's the son of God, that God himself took on flesh. Well, that's who he's confronting then, but he also confronts the beliefs of today. It confronts Gnosticism, but it also confronts what is called subjectivism. By pointing to the fact that what undergirds in the foundation of our certainty is something that has historical evidence. John is stating here that this is not a matter of subjective experience. See, the the normal uh, claims today is that the religious truth is merely a subjective truth that you you can pick up as you will and you can put down as you will. It's all based on your own subjective opinion and your own personal preferences. In fact, Immanuel Kant, says this. He's the father of modern philosophy, essentially. He says all religions are subjectively helpful, but they are not objectively true. In other words, what he's saying is we should look for the, the, the religion that is, that is subjectively helpful to you, and this is how people view religion today. Oh, I'm a, I'm a very spiritual person, and I do this, and I do this. Why? Because it's helpful for my marriage. It's helpful for my kids. It helps me do my job. It makes me feel at peace in the world. It's all about whether it's helpful. It's not a, it's not a matter of whether it's true or not, it's how you experience it. So the difference between subjective and objective truth is this. Subjective truth is I'm warm or I'm cold. Objective truth is that this the city of Tallahassee is the capital of Florida. One is an objective statement, one is a subjective experience. And I would say that the single most potent weapon to delegitimize Christianity today is to consign Christianity to merely a subjective experience and to make Christianity merely a matter of taste instead of a matter of truth. You know what a matter of taste is? You know, wine is a matter of taste. You know, there's this incredible documentary called Psalm in which there's about 120 people in the world who are master sommeliers, 120 of them. Maybe there's 200 now, in which the whole movie is about how someone goes and reaches the level of master sommelier. But even that... Even with that, with all these years, 10 years of training on wine, they all have different opinions as to what they like and don't like. It's a matter of opinion, of personal taste. Music, that's a matter of personal taste, right? Man, some of you love bluegrass. Some of you love country music. Some of you, when country music comes on, it sounds like a cat meowing in the night. And you want nothing to do with it. That's a matter of personal taste. People say that Christianity is in the realm of music and wine. Do I like it? This is where our world puts it. This is where the Ellens and the Oprahs put Christianity. It's in the subjective experience and your preference. And you know why people do this? There's a spiritual reality underneath this. Because if, it, if truth remains subjective, you have control over it. But if it is objective, it has control over you. John Piper says this, Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing our particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many people. Because then, then, truth gets to speak into your life. You don't get to own truth. And John says that's the reason he was sure about his teaching. It's because of what they saw. Confidence in the sense experience. That what we saw, what we heard, what we felt, I felt Jesus' body. And and you say, these were not just like mystical guys, right? Remember Thomas? Jesus is risen from the dead. The other disciples see him. Thomas wasn't there, and he goes, no, 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 no. Y'all are smoking something. And I will not believe unless I can stick my hands where in his physical side. And Jesus shows up and says, Have a touch. You want to believe, you touch. So this is the testimony of Christianity. It rises and falls upon this evidence. We don't believe Christianity because it makes us feel good. We believe Christianity because the unexplainable has met the undeniable. But the undeniable evidence of those who would, and witness after witness after witness would say, he did this, he did this, and he did this. So it rises and falls on the evidence, and that's why it's the foundation of our certainty. Is Jesus a real historical person who really did what they say he did? That is the question. You have to look. Are you certain? Have you done your work? Have you done your work? You know, Benjamin Franklin's got a great quote where he says, I don't really care about religion, but I haven't really studied it. <laughs> oh, that's helpful. That's how often people go. Oh, yeah, Christianity, I don't believe that. Well, have you studied it? Have you actually gone and looked at the evidence? There is an evidence that demands a verdict. Second, John sets the table for this discussion on certainty by pointing to the subject of certainty, the subject of certainty. Verse three, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, the foundation of assurance And certainty is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The historical, evidential claim that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. That's the historical gospel. But the gospel has a purpose beyond simply what Jesus did. It accomplishes something. It does something for us. And John says that the purpose of this historical defense of the gospel is in believing that and all these things that Jesus did is what? That we might have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. The story of the Bible is this, is that when God created us, we walked with God. We talked with God. God, we felt the presence of God. And what did we do? We rejected him. And ever since, we have been enemies of God. We have been separate from God. We could not walk with God. We could not have access to God. We could not talk to God. And so what does Jesus do? He comes to reconcile that gap between us so that we might have fellowship with God once again. Now listen, we have to get over this word fellowship because fellowship in the church world, what we think that means is watching football with Christians or church potlucks. But this word is significantly far more than that. Literally what the word fellowship, like there's a homeschool group in our area that's even titled by it. Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and it means to share, to share. And so therefore, when we say, what John is saying, the point of the gospel, what Jesus accomplished for you is you get fellowship with God. What he's really saying is you get to share something with God. And so what is it we get to share with God? Here's what it is. And this is the profound nature. We share the same life as God. Now, that sounds heretical. That sounds too intimate. But that is exactly the truth of the gospel. Let me me give some proof. 2 Peter 1, 1, verses 3 and 4, it says this. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises, so that through them, what? you might become partakers in the divine nature. You you partake in the divine nature. Galatians 2.20, we share in his nature. His life comes into us, is what the gospel is saying. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. That is not just kind of whimsical language. What Jesus accomplished is intimacy with God an intimacy that is so profound that God lives inside of you and you are united in him. This does not mean, now really quickly, this does not mean that we become God himself, but it does mean that God resides in us himself. It doesn't mean you're still your own person. For example, my children. My children have gotten a lot from me they got my eyebrows for my poor kids, right? They've got Henley eyebrows, which communicate anger and frustration at all moments of the day. All things go through my eyebrows. Love and affection, oh, it really communicates, I hate you. Right? So I've given this to my children genetically, but that doesn't mean they're not their own person. They're still themselves, but they've gotten part of who I am, part of my nature, and this is what's going on. We don't get immersed in the Godhead in the sense that we lose our personhood or that we become God Himself. But this is the intimacy of the nature that we begin to take on the nature of God. The nature of God resides in you and it begins to push its way out in your life. It's kind of like the word infusion. Like when you put a tea bag in water, what happens? Does it still taste like water? No. The flavor of the tea takes over, and the nature of Christ will take over your life. The Bible says the very lifeblood of God, the very substance of God, the profound spirit of God resides in you. He comes into us, and we share of that. And this is the story of the Bible. right? This is actually the story of creation. You share in the image of God. Why did God make people? The Trinity had lived in community. He didn't need us. The Trinity had lived in this wonderful community of love for all of eternity with joy and bliss around one another, giving glory to one another, in which the Father gave glory to the Son and the Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit gave glory to the Father, and vice versa. And the the image that C.S. Lewis gives us is they dance around each other in glory. They They are enjoying each other's presence in all the beauty of their nature and their essence and their substance. And yet would God in God, the Trinitarian God says, you know what? The Father says, I I want more to I want others to know about this Son and about the Spirit. And the Son and the Spirit say, We want to know others to know, to share in the beauty of the fatherhood of God, and this father, the person of the Father, and to say that we're gonna create. Let's create and exhibit ourselves to our creation and have them join in on the dance to enjoy us and to express ourselves to our creation that we've made. This is the story of the Bible, and what did we do? We said, nah, nah. We were junior high boys. The hottest girl at the dance said, you wanna dance with me? He said, I'm too scared, I'm gonna be a wallflower. I'm gonna melt into the wall, and I'll reject you, and I want nothing to do with you. And so you know what Jesus did? Jesus said, you know what, I'm gonna come to the wall. I'm gonna draw you out, and I'm gonna draw you into the dance. This is the truth of the gospel, the kind of intimacy that we get to experience. And so the question is this, what in Christianity are you certain of? And this is the subject. That's why I use that terminology and the point. The subject is this, is that you know God in this way. Do I have this intimacy with God? Am I communing with God in this sort of way? Do I have a relationship with God such that I am in him and he is in me? That is the question. That is what it means to have fellowship. Do you have fellowship with God in this way? This goes beyond simply, yeah, I have devotions. Now listen, that is, that is on the way to fellowship with God. But fellowship with God is something far more than presence. He abides in you and you abide in him. In fact, that's the word that John's going to bring up over and over again. Abide, abide, abide. Are you in Christ Jesus? So that's what we want to be sure and certain of. Is do you have fellowship? Do you know God? Know God. There, there is differences in knowing in the Bible, right? This is graphic language, but when it says in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3, Adam knew Eve and they produced a child. No, that is knowing that is different from the way I know Ed Hogan. Praise God. <laughs> Yeah, we can all all God's people said amen. amen. Except for Carol. She <laughs> there is knowing, and there is knowing. In fact, did you know in premarital counseling, this is what I talk about: that sex is the actual image of the intimacy between the members of the Trinity. That's why it's sacred. And this is the intimacy, and this is why God gives it to us as a picture. Because that's a, Because maybe you don't have sex with God. It is something far more than that. It is fellowship with God in the most intimate terms. Third, John sets the stage for our discussion of certainty by pointing to us the goal of certainty. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Quick, Real quick before we get to this, an exegetical point here. Uh, Exegetical is a study, like a scientific study of the scriptures and what it's saying. It says our joy. Now, throughout all the other verses, when when John's talking about we and our, he's talking about him, the apostles, the eyewitnesses. And then in two verses, two and three, he says you. He says we are giving uh, our. We are giving you evidence of the historical case of Jesus. But in verse four, what shifts that we and our and you become one hour. But this is our experience collectively. Both our experience as apostles and now because you have embraced the evidence of Jesus and have fellowship with him, this is our joy as well. Okay. Now we get to the point. The fullness and completion of joy is found in knowing God, in fellowship with God, in sharing life with God. That is complete joy. That is where it is found. And so you might say, well, okay, that's what we've already just looked at. So why, is, why does it seem like there's something beyond? We talked about the fellowshipping Why is he now saying, I I write all these things so you can have complete joy? Well, what John is getting at is is a pastoral experience. That John is saying that the reality, the objective nature of your Christian walk is that you have fellowship with God. You get to know God. But there is a vastly big difference between having fellowship with God and knowing you have fellowship with God. And it's called assurance. That there is a gap between knowing and being saved And having the complete joy and the thing that bridges the joy gap is assurance. Is that I know I'm saved. That I know I know God. See, John is pastoring in a world where he's saying, listen, you know God. You have fellowship with God. You are intimate with God. He lives in you and you live with him. But we also live in a world where what? What happens? We live in a broken world where suffering happens. We live in broken bodies in which we sin. And so we begin to ask questions. Am I, do I really know God? Does God really reside in me? Am I really in fellowship with him? In fact, at the very end of the book, John says this. He, 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 he puts these two together. He shows us. First John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In other words, what he is saying here is, I've written this book so that you know you're of God, even while the whole world lies under the power of wickedness even why horrible things are going along in your life and around you, and even things that you've done, that you can still know in the midst of that that you are of God, that you're connected to God. And it's when you know that that you have joy. It's John's way of saying, I know this, this world is a terrible place. It's under the power of the evil one. But even in the midst of that, you can have joy even now. You see, the question is to why the question of, people, of, of, of the teenager who comes to me and says, can I, how can I know I'm a Christian? That is, that is a question from brokenness. That is not a question we'll have to ask in heaven. That is a question that we have to ask now because we live in a world in which bad things, suffering happens to us and we ask the question, why would a good God let this happen to me? Am I really connected to him? Does he really love me? And which we do awful things. and which a man comes to me and says, I've cheated on my wife. Am I really of God?" Do I really know God? I have this habitual sin that I cannot get out of my life. I, do I know God? Do I have the, does God reside in me? Do I reside in Him? See, that is the question of, of, of living in a broken world. We will not have to ask those questions one day, but today we do. And John, as a good pastor, says, I want you to know. And so, what he's going to do for the rest of the book, he's going to say, We're going to walk through the issue of assurance. I want to lead you to having joy. And part of that will be what you believe. Part of that will be who you'll surround yourself with. Part of that will be how you live, how you love, and what you trust in. And brothers and sisters, my desire for preaching the first John is the exact same reason. Here's one of the things I've come to realize about myself. I have a more natural prophetic voice, which means my natural tendency as a pastor is to go wham! And to take a stick and like just jab it in you. And Acts has that temperament. That it's like, I feel like for the last six months all I've been doing is going, all right, how do we stink so bad this week? And I have to like goad you. Go, do something! And listen, that, that, there is a place for that. But what I desperately want for you, what I think will actually drive you out is when you come to a place of joy. When I have come to trust Jesus, and I love him so much that i got to tell somebody because I understand what he has done for me, and I see the evidence, and I know I know him, and I experience his delight over me and his love for me. And so the pastoral side of me, the thing that's going on inside of my heart speaks like 1 John. My temperament speaks like Acts. My heart speaks like 1 John. And so sometimes as a pastor, I have to say, you know what? I just got to get somebody to give me the language. So brothers and sisters, this is what I want for you. I want you to be certain that you know God. I want you to, be, to know the fellowship of his experience. And you know one of the worst ways that God has given to us to experience fellowship with him? It's a meal. It's interesting. The old Puritan writers, instead of using the word fellowship, you know how they would translate this word? Communion. God. Common union. In fact, what are we ingesting? That is the picture we're getting here. You see, what God, it's more than simply, right, the table is a representation of what we'll experience in heaven, where God will have union, communion, fellowship with us in the sense of gathering around a table, but it's far more than that. You see, what communion is representing is that you are ingesting the bread and the cup, and we're saying this is the body and blood of Jesus. Not really. But spiritually, in other words, we're saying our life source. We are ingesting the divine nature, the thing that we need most to know God. He's given us a physical representation to remind you of that fact, that you are not your own, that he comes to reside in you and you in him. That is what we celebrate at the table. Will you join us, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. This time, those who are serving, you'll come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that, Lord, when we were ones who were running from you, that we frankly thought that connection to you, to intimacy with you, fellowship with you was the worst thing in the world. That in those moments, you pursued to such a degree that you took on flesh so that you could unite yourself to us, that you could win for us the right to be reconciled to God, and not just reconciliation in the sense that we're not fighting with God anymore, but a reconciliation of intimacy to to such a degree that God lives in us and we live in him. Lord, I... To be quite honest, Lord, I, I, I've come to the end of my abilities in my vocabulary to try to describe that. That is, that is something beyond my understanding, but Lord, I pray that you would drive home that experience that such that it would, it, would, it would increase our joy as we grow more and more certain of the Father's love for us. God, we come to your table. This place where you beckon us to come and experience you, to come remember the historically, what God, what you did in time and space to win for us the future right to sit at a table with you in heaven. And we come because we need this table. We forget that you're our power and our life source. We forget that we day in and day out. And so, God, I pray that you would remind us and that through this simple bread and this simple cup, we set these things aside and we ask that you'd give us grace to affirm us, affirm in us the truth of the gospel, and to help us to enjoy the experience of all that Christ has won for us in the gospel. We pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, amen.